and I'm not going to say it. <laughs> you know, we're a church that has no money-making ventures. We don't have bake sales and raffles and all that sort of thing. But if we were, it just occurred to me we could make a ton of money if we would sell tickets for people to come and see Bill Sullivan ride a stick horse. <laughs> That's quite a show, wasn't it? <laughs> well, how'd you sleep last night? Did you have any dreams? Dreams you remember? Did you have any bad dreams? Did you have perhaps a nightmare? Have you ever thought about why we call these things nightmares? I wonder what it would be like to have a night stallion. Have you ever thought about that? I don't know the answer. <laughs> there has to be some reason for calling it a nightmare. The, the reason escapes me, dreams. You know, ever since Barb's death, it's been a rare night that she's not in my dreams. On last Thursday, I had two dreams that are interesting, at least interesting to me. A bunch of us from TCF had gone to Denver, Colorado for a convention. And we traveled from Tulsa to Denver in a caravan of vans. I was driving one. And we were staying in campgrounds outside of Denver. Campgrounds consisted of several cabins. And we drove into Denver to attend the convention sessions. One day as we were in the sessions and the crowd was quite large, we became separated from one another. And when it became time to go home, the group I was with, Barbara wasn't in that group, and I thought, well, she'll surely be traveling back with the other group. So I drove the van with my group back to the campgrounds, but she wasn't there. So I was trying to call her on the cell phone. The cell phone wouldn't work, and there was a, a phone on the desk that had dial, so I kept trying to dial and getting it wrong. Finally got it right and talked to her, and she said, there are a whole bunch of folks from TCF here in the lobby. We don't have any transportation. So we drove back in and brought them back and we got to the campgrounds and started to discuss the campgrounds and I woke up. So I have no idea what that conversation was going to be, but in a little while I went back to sleep and suddenly I found myself on 53rd Street where we had lived for about 24 years where our children grew up. Our children were still small. Suddenly some of Barbara's relatives arrived from Muskogee and they had a bunch of small kids and everybody went in the backyard and started playing soccer and then suddenly Kim Barger drove up in a black van and he had a motorcycle in the back and his two kids got out and ran the backyard to play soccer and two dogs started fighting. Don't know what that meant. I went in the house, Barbara was standing by the refrigerator and she took me and held me at arm's length and said, now, I had just come back in this dream from a long ministry trip. She held me at arm's length and said, You know, we've been apart so long, it's going to take a while for us to get used to one another. <laughs> and then I started waking up. I tried not to wake up because I knew if I did, she'd be gone. But I had to wake up and uh, begin the day. Dreams, what do they mean? Freud, during one season of his life, gave a lot of attention to dreams. He just became almost obsessed with analyzing dreams, and he thought they contained the key, really, to our personalities. One time he was studying his own dreams, and out of the studies of his own dreams came some conclusions with which I certainly 
can't agree, but most dreams are a reflection of something that's going on in our lives, some kind of a circumstance. The figures, the events are usually different, but somehow they're reflecting of what's going on. Some carry very serious portent. Last week, a friend of mine called, a leader of another church. He had had a dream that was extremely disturbing. It was so real that even after he awakened, it was still with him. And he called me to say, can you help me see if there's any message from God in this dream? And we began to discuss it. And one thing that did seem to be clear, God was warning about some serious move of Satan that was going to happen in a short time in his life. We didn't know what it was. He called me Thursday and he said all hell is broken loose. It had happened. And then we began to further discuss the dream. The book of Daniel is the book of nightmares. As a matter of fact, chapters 7 through 12 with overlooking the interlude of chapter 9 is totally nightmares and dreams and night visions. And even in the first half of the book, as you count the number of verses in those chapters themselves, the majority of that portion relates to night visions and, and dreams. The king has dreams, Daniel has dreams. Very lengthy and involved books have been written about the dreams of Daniel, people trying to interpret the future because many of them are prophetic. And if you read those dreams, and if you have a cursory knowledge of ancient history, you can see how they line up with many things that have already happened, but much is still in the future. How do we interpret the dreams of Daniel that relate to the future? It requires a lot of speculation. And frankly, I'm not given to such speculation. But throughout Daniel and all of the dreams and all of the episodes found in that book, there is this underlying truth that continually comes forth, and that's this. God is in charge. That is the overriding method, or message rather, of the book of Daniel. Because Daniel believed that to the very core of his being, he's really become a model for us today as to how we can live in an alien world because he lived in an alien world and the world in which we live is becoming increasingly an alien world to those who are followers of Jesus Christ. Seven different episodes are recorded in Daniel and in every one of them the overriding message is this, God is in charge. Now we encounter that immediately as we start to read the book of Daniel. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Notice this. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence and every branch of wisdom, 
endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. He ordered Ashpenaz to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. But notice, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. A hundred fifty years prior to this episode, Jerusalem was besieged by the army of the Assyrians. It was a vast army, and it was apparent that before long the Assyrians were going to break through the walls and conquer the city. Hezekiah, Isaiah, fled with Jehovah. And then an interesting happened, Isaiah 37, 36. Then the angel of the Lord went forth and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred and fourscore and five thousand. And this is the way the King James says it, which is always interesting to me. When they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. <laughs> Could understand that. They all got up and said, we're dead. No, it really means the people in Jerusalem woke up. But God is in charge. He did not allow this vast Assyrian army to conquer Jerusalem. But on this occasion, as recorded in Daniel, God is in charge. And he allowed, he actively was involved. He gave Jehoiakim and the city of Jerusalem into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And then as was his custom, when Nebuchadnezzar conquered a country, he would collect from that country the cream of the crop of young men and bring them to his capital. And there he would train them to be future servants in his court. He desired to have a multi a national group in his court. And so when he conquered Jerusalem, when he conquered Israel, he had his chief officer, Aphidataz, to go in from the cream of the crop, bring Israelite boys to Shinar. And among those he brought were four young men from Judah, Daniel and his companions. This looked like a great opportunity to be trained to serve in the court of the king. The king was the most, not only the most powerful the man in the world at that time, but the man who led the greatest kingdom that had ever been in all the earth. And so here Daniel and his companions were. And it's so clear that from the very first they believed God is in charge. If God is in charge, and here we are, then we must model cooperation without compromise. He's caused us to be here, he's allowed us to be here, and we'll conform as long as we do not have to compromise our faith. First of all, they accepted Babylonian names, Belshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Conforming, okay, this is where we are. They gave themselves to diligent study in the training program assigned to them, cooperating, and they prepared themselves for service. You know what an example of they, they said in training. Sometimes we don't want to spend time in training. We want to lurch forth. I remember reading about Parham, who was one of the progenitors of the Pentecostal movement, 
And he believed that people who could speak in tongues and then they could go out as missionaries without studying any language. Bunch went to China and it was disastrous. <laughs> God says, get training. If you want to be a carpenter, learn to be an apprentice. If you want to be an apostle, spend time in training. That was true of Paul, true of Barnabas, true of others. But immediately they had to face a faith challenged. Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank, and he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. You see, the king wanted these young men in training to be the healthiest, the brightest, the best possible. And so from his own table, what was served at, at his table was taken to them, drink and food. But Daniel said, we can't eat that, we can't drink that, we'll defile ourselves. And here's why. It was the custom of the Babylonians to offer food as a sacrifice to their God before they ate it. When we come to eat, we pray and ask God to bless the food. We pronounce a blessing upon it. We say grace. The Babylonians did that and consecrated their food to their God. Some say, well, Daniel didn't want to eat it because it wasn't kosher. Wine is kosher. But if he partook of this food, he would be defiling himself. Paul wrote the certain same thing to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he said, if you eat food that is dedicated to idols, you see all there are is stone, but it is dedicated to the demons who are represented by these idols. And so Daniel faced a challenge. But he believed God's in charge. And so notice they didn't start a hunger strike. They didn't rise up in rebellion, but they followed appropriate decorum, shall we say, protocol. And he went to the man that was over them, and he said, can you just give us vegetables and water? The commander said, oh, no, I can't do that, because after a while you won't look as good as the others, and I'll be in trouble. Daniel said, let's just have ten days. Let, just do this for ten days. Don't let anybody see, and then you look at us and see if we look as good as the rest. You know the story. They were granted that request at the end of ten days. Their appearance seemed better. They were fatter. I guess that's a sign of something good. Fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food and so they continued in that how did they have the courage to take such a step they were probably between 15 and 20 years of age teenagers shall we say teenagers who had the courage to say we will not defile ourselves I challenge our teenagers <laughs> To realize God is in charge. God is in charge. Behave like Daniel. The second recorded episode is in chapter 2. King had nightmare. 
very disturbing nightmare. And so he wanted to know what was this all about. He was very troubled. And so he called in all of his wise men, the conjurers, the magicians, uh, the, the Chaldeans, all of these who supposedly had the wisdom to interpret dreams. And he said, tell me the dream, and then interpret it. He said, are you nuts? <laughs> Nobody can tell you what you dream. That's never been asked of anyone before. He said, tell me the dream, and then interpret it. We can't interpret it. You have to tell us the dream. He started to think, you're a bunch of fakers. He said, I see what you're doing. You're stalling for time. Tell me the dream, or I'll tear you limb to limb, and I'll bulldoze all of your houses. He couldn't do it. And so he told his chief commander, go out and kill all of the wise men, all of the conjurers, all the magicians, destroy them all. Now Daniel and his companions were a part of that group. They would not been party to this event, but they were part of that group. And so the commander came to them to kill them. But they believed that God is in charge. And they said, what's this all about? Why are you in such a hurry? And he explained to them. And Daniel went into Nebuchadnezzar and he said, just give me time, I will seek my God, the God of heaven. And then I'll come back and tell you the dream and its interpretation. So he went back and he and his, his companions had a prayer meeting. Oh God, and notice they said, we will beseech the God of heaven. And the God of heaven revealed to them what the dream was and the interpretation. And Daniel did not immediately rush to the king. That's so important to realize. You remember when Jesus healed the ten lepers? And if you were healed from leprosy, what you were supposed to do was immediately go to the priest, and the priest would examine you and say, yep, the healing's genuine. And when Jesus healed the ten lepers, they all rushed off to see the priest, but one stopped, a Samaritan, and came back to express gratitude. Jesus said, we're not ten cleansed, where are the nine? The nine rushed off to take care of business, but one came back to thank God. Notice Daniel, when the, when the revelation was given and the danger of death was pending, he didn't rush back to the king to have the sword lifted. But notice he paused. In your reading in chapter 2, you'll notice it. He paused to glorify and thank God, verses 19 and following of chapter 2. And then he went to the king and gave the revelation because he believed God is in charge. The third episode is found in chapter 3. After Nebuchadnezzar had conquered all the nations of the world, all of his enemies, he controlled the entire Mediterranean and the Mideastern world. And he was filled with pride. And so he built a golden statue. Now think of this, a, gold, a statue of gold 90 feet tall and 9 feet square. That's something, isn't it? And he built that to commemorate 
his new world empire. And then he commanded everyone who's involved in any position in his government to come to the plain of Dura where he had erected this thing. And he had an orchestra. It's interesting as you read the, those instruments, the King James says the sackbut. I always wondered what that is. That's a primitive trombone. That's really a poor translation of the word. It really probably means some kind of a harp. But anyway, he had his orchestra play. And as soon as the orchestra played, everyone was to fall down and worship this image, in essence, to worship Nebuchadnezzar and his force. And everyone did it, except Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We know where Daniel was. He's not in this story, but his companions are. So, because these young men had been so elevated in the empire, others were jealous of them, and they came to him and said, Hey, you know those Jews? They won't bow down and worship the idol. Nebuchadnezzar was irate. He brought him into his presence and said, All right, boys, here we are. Here's this idol, and I'm going to command the orchestra, and as soon as they start to play, you bow down. Okay, orchestra? But they were convinced that God is in charge. <laughs> and they did not bow down. In his anger, he had them bound hand and foot, fully clothed, the Bible says, in their breeches, <laughs> in their cloaks, and even with their caps on. And he said, heat that furnace hotter than it's ever been before, and I'm going to throw them in and burn them to death furnace was so hot, notice it says some of the valiant warriors in his army, evidently special ops group or something like that, he had them take them up to the furnace and the furnace was so hot, as soon as they threw them in, these guys were all killed by the heat. And Nebuchadnezzar was standing back watching and to his surprise, he saw them walking around in the furnace. But there was a fourth person with them. He said, didn't we throw three in? And finally, he shouts, come out. <laughs> and they came out. Their clothes aren't burned. Their hair's not sinned. As a matter of fact, it says there wasn't even a smell of fire upon them. And you hear their reply before they were put in the furnace. So it's so important. They said, our God will deliver us, but if not. <laughs> That's so important. But if not, he's in charge. And they were delivered. How did they have the courage to do that? Because they believe that God is in charge. The fourth recorded episode is in chapter 4. And this is demonstrated when Daniel had to bring a hard word to the king. king had another nightmare. Called in various ones who couldn't answer at all. And Daniel came in and he immediately had the reply. And Daniel, given that revelation of God, did not want to bring this word. Because the dream 
was describing a time when Nebuchadnezzar, evidently Daniel had come to love Nebuchadnezzar, and he didn't want to bring this hard word because it spoke of a time when Nebuchadnezzar was going to lose his mind and be insane and spend seven years living as an animal, his fingernails getting so long they were like bird's claws, his hair uncut. He'd live outdoors, eat grass, be out of his mind for seven years. Daniel didn't want to bring the word. Nebuchadnezzar said, Tell me. Daniel, believing God is in charge, then delivered the word of the Lord. A full year later, Nebuchadnezzar was standing on the roof of his palace, the roof garden area looking out over the city of Babylon and looking as far as he could in the distance to see his empire. And he said, this is my Babylon, my nation. Look what I have done and what I have built. And it was glorying. And suddenly, he became a madman. His kingdom was in the hands of others. And indeed, for seven years, he lived as an animal. And then at the end of that time, it says he came to his senses and began to glorify the God of heaven, and his kingdom was restored. I think there's a lesson for us in what Daniel had to do. He had to deliver a hard word and he did so because God is in charge. Sometimes we have to deliver a hard word. And notice the word was not harsh, but hard. It was hard because he didn't want to say it. But he had to say it. In my view, one of the most important points I made in the sermon on Palm Sunday was when Jesus had ascended the Mount of Olives and turned to the left and beheld the city of Jerusalem and began to weep over the city, that in that moment God's compassion was at war with God's love. God's compassion dreaded the thought of what was going to happen to Jerusalem. But His love said, it has to happen. <coughs> and there are times in life when we have compassion for someone, we don't want to bring the hard word. But love says, you have to say it. You have to do it. Believing that God is in charge, Daniel brought the hard word. And then the fifth episode emphasizes that truth very strongly. Nebuchadnezzar had a daughter named Nidocris. Nidocris married a Babylonian noble by the name of Nabonidus. And they had a son named Belshazzar. And as Belshazzar grew to adulthood, he showed various promise. He was a very venal person. And when Nebuchadnezzar died, then Nabonidus became king of Babylon. 
He had in his heart to go out into the world and even enlarge the empire. But he didn't want to leave Babylon unattended, and so he made his son Belshazzar co-regent. And Nabonidus went off to defeat Samaz and other places as Belshazzar ruled at home. Being the very hedonistic and venal man that he was, he did many things in one night. He had a huge banquet, a huge banquet for a thousand nobles and all of their wives and concubines, and the banquet turned into a drinking orgy. And in a blasphemous way, he sent to the treasury to get the holy vessels that had been brought out of the temple of Jehovah. And they began to fill them with wine. And in this drunken orgy, they began to drink the wine. And from what is said later, obviously mocking Jehovah. Belshazzar was sitting in his chair. And suddenly on the wall, opposite him, he saw a hand. And he saw the back of the hand. And the fingers began to write graffiti. <laughs> graffiti on the wall. He tried to stand up. His hip joints wouldn't work. His knees were knocking together. He became pale. Somebody tell me what this means. He called in again all the magicians, the conjurers, the Babylonian wise men. None of them could figure it out. And then his mother, his mother, Nitocris came in and said, you know, there is a man in this kingdom who used to often interpret your grandfather's dreams. His name is Daniel. Go get him. So they brought Daniel in. And Daniel began to read, first of all, what none of them could even read or interpret. Mine, mine, tikelufarsin. This is the interpreter of the message, Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tikal, you have weighed on the scales and been found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Boy, wouldn't that take some courage to tell a fellow like that who could lop your head off. God is in charge. And he spoke the word which that very night came true. The Medes and Persians broke into Babylon. Belshazzar was killed. And the ruler of Babylon became Darius. And then the sixth episode, Darius now is the king. Darius appointed 120 satraps to oversee his kingdom. And then he appointed some commissioners to oversee the satraps. And Daniel was one of the commissioners, but he did such an excellent job that Darius said, I'm putting you in charge of the whole show. So Daniel was the chief commissioner. And some of the politicians and others of the area became jealous of Daniel, and they said, we have to find some way to bring this Jew down. And so they began to watch every move he made trying to find some kind of malfeasance of office, but he was a man of such integrity, they couldn't find one thing to use against him. But this they knew. He was a faithful worshiper of Jehovah. 
three times every day he went to the top room of his house and faced the city of Jerusalem and prayed to God. And they said, this is the way we'll get him. And so they went to Darius and said, you know, Darius, you're such a great king. You've conquered everything. We, we, because we love you so much and respect you and honor you so much, we ask that you write a decree that for the next 30 days, anybody who beseeches any god or any other being, that they'll be thrown into the lion's den. Well, their flattery prevailed. He signed it. Aha, now we have Daniel. Now, when a king of a Mede or a Persian signs a decree, it cannot be changed. And so they went to him and said, well, we saw Daniel. He's still praying to Jerusalem, still praying to this Jehovah. And you know that's a violation of your decree. He has to be thrown into the lion's den. Darius didn't want to do it, but he realized he had little choice. You know the story of Daniel in the lion's den. <laughs> but it's interesting to see how Daniel faced it without fear because he knew God is in charge. And the last episode is in chapter 9. Daniel was troubled about the future of Israel. He had read the writings of the prophet Jeremiah and knew that God had decreed that Israel would be in exile for 70 years. But he began to seek and pray and intercede and Lord, give me some more insight and understanding of what will happen next. If you remember, he prayed for 21 days and nothing happened and then the angel Gabriel arrived and gave him a huge panorama of the future. And notice time and again, if you read that, it says it is decreed, it is decreed, it is decreed, God is in charge. That's the message throughout Daniel. God is in charge. There's an old Sunday school song, Dare to Be a Daniel. Now, for many years, this song was in every songbook published for Sunday schools and youth groups. The tune is simple. The lyrics are not outstanding, but let me read it as a challenge to us this morning. Standing by a purpose true, heeding God's command, Honor them, the faithful few. All hail to Daniel's band. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. And dare to make it known. Many mighty men are lost. Daring not to stand. Who for God had, had been a host. By joining Daniel's band. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose firm, and dare to make it known. Mighty giants, great and tall, stalking through the land, headlong to the earth would fall if met by Daniel's band. Dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose firm, and dare to make it known. Hold the gospel banner high. 
on to victory grand. Satan and his host defy and shout for Daniel's man. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm and dare to make it known. As we said in the beginning, those of us who seek to live a life of faith in God, who seek to lead a life governed by His standards, believing God is in charge. Let us dare to be a Daniel.